We'll let the plane go overhead. How's that? Folks, there's a conflict brewing today within the ranks of evangelical Christianity. A conflict with regard to the presence and the future of the state of Israel. In order to understand this conflict, I need to give you a short history lesson. This morning's message is going to be quite a bit different than is typical. We're looking at Romans chapter 11 in our trip through Paul's letter to the church there at Rome. We've arrived at this great chapter 11, but what I want to do this morning is just overview that chapter with you. I want to just take a broad look at that chapter, set up the themes, and then we'll come back next week and we'll begin to exposit it verse by verse as we go. But as a background to set all that up, I want to, I want to talk to you a little bit about this conflict that is brewing here in the church. Some of you are aware of what I'm talking about. Others of you, at least when I'm done, will be aware. And certainly the state of Israel, I don't believe you can turn on the news any day of the week and not hear something about the state of Israel. So this is important stuff. Let me give you a little history lesson to begin. In the two decades leading up to World War II, large numbers of Jews from Europe immigrated into Palestine in a movement that is known as Zionism. This push for a Jewish homeland, and that's essentially what Zionism is, a a push for a homeland for the Jews. This homeland here in Palestine has historically drawn support from some within the Anglo-American evangelical church. In the years immediately following World War II, this immigration just accelerated. The modern state of Israel arose by United Nations mandate in 1948, coming out of the ashes of World War II. After the First World War and the breakup of the Turkish Ottoman Empire, Palestine was placed under the administration of Great Britain. After looking at various alternatives at the end of the Second World War, the United Nations proposed partitioning Palestine into two independent states. One Palestinian Arab state and the other a Jewish state with the city of Jerusalem to be an internationalized city. That was the U.N. plan. The plan was ill-fated and rocked with violence from the very start. Those early days were filled with turmoil and violence, as I said, and eventually out-and-out war that created a significant number of Palestinian refugees. Israel, as an outcome of that 1948 war, conquered a good portion of what was to be originally the Palestinian Arab state under the United Nations mandate. They also conquered a portion of Jerusalem. The nations of Jordan and Syria 
held on to the remaining territory that was to comprise the Palestinian Arab state. And we are now where we are. In 1967, Israel defeated a combined attack from the countries of Egypt, Jordan and Syria in what is known as the Six Day War. One of the outcomes of that conflict was that Israel captured the old city of Jerusalem and for the first time in more than a millennia had unhindered access to the Temple Mount area. This further inflamed what had become known by that time as the Palestinian problem. The essence of this problem is the evident need for a Palestinian state either within or alongside of the state of Israel. There are hundreds and hundreds of thousands, yea, I would suspect at this time millions of refugees. This problem is a Gordian knot that the past 60 years of international diplomacy has been unable to untie. There has been one aborted peace plan after another for 60 years and, and there is no, we are no closer to peace in the Middle East than we were before it all began. In fact, the man who can bring peace to the Middle East will have the world bowing at his feet. At least that's what the Bible says. Here's the conflict. In 2002, Knox Theological Seminary, located in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, published what they call an open letter to evangelicals and other interested parties. In this letter, they addressed the issue of Israel and the Palestinian conflict. That letter bore the original signature of 26 pastors and theologians drawn from the ranks of the evangelical reformed tradition. Since that time, others have added their signatures to this open letter. And according to the last report I read, that number now totals 154 signatures. In that letter, the writers make a number of important and vital statements regarding the necessity for faith in Christ as the sole means by which sinful man is reconciled with God. That those truths are something that we would wholeheartedly embrace and preach and in fact do from this pulpit every single Sunday. So these are our brothers. They are absolutely our brothers in Jesus Christ. But they also write in that open letter, and I quote now, apart from Christ... There is no special divine favor upon any member of any ethnic group, nor apart from Christ is there any divine promise of an earthly land to anyone, whether Jew or Gentile. They go on to write, I quote, the entitlement of any one ethnic or religious group to territory in the Middle East called the Holy Land cannot be supported by Scripture. 
In fact, the land promises specific to Israel in the Old Testament were fulfilled under Joshua. Close the quote. Herein lies the problem. While we can agree with our brothers that the scriptures are clear and consistent, that the future blessings upon the nation of Israel are inextricably tied to the new covenant. And the only means by which a Jew becomes a beneficiary of that new covenant is through faith in Jesus Christ. We would agree with that. But we cannot agree that somehow those promises made to the fathers were fulfilled in the days of Joshua and that ethnic Israel is no longer has a biblical claim to the land. We cannot agree to that. And the reason we cannot agree to that is because the Bible does not agree to that. The Apostle Paul does not agree to that. Genesis chapters 12, 15, and 17 In those chapters, God clearly promises the land to Abraham and his descendants. There is no question about that. As God added further revelation, we learn that in order for Israel to inherit those promises, the descendants must emulate the faith of Abraham. But it is also true that they must be drawn from the loins of Abraham. Simply put. Here it is in a nutshell for you. The true heirs of the ancient land of Israel are those who are the descendants of Abraham, both ethnically and spiritually. Ethnically and spiritually. Now, as a reminder to us, let us look at what the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel had to say about this new covenant and the promise of the land. So I want you to open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31. Again, I'm not going to have time to work this through with you verse by verse. This is a big picture. If you're using a pew Bible, page 789. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 27. And by the way, to my brothers who say that the promises were fulfilled under Joshua, I just might remind them of some biblical chronology, and that is that both Jeremiah and Ezekiel write long after Joshua had left the scene. Jeremiah 31, and beginning in verse 27. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. And it will come about that as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy and to bring disaster. So I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. What is he talking about? Jeremiah is writing to the southern kingdom who are in the process of being swept away in the Babylonian captivity. They are being being under the judgment of God taken out of their land. They have repeatedly 
failed the Mosaic Covenant. They have turned from God. They have turned to the idols of the land. They have not heeded their prophets that God has sent to them over and over and over again to call them back. And finally, God says, enough is enough. You will go into captivity and you will spend one year in captivity for every year that you refuse to lay the land fallow in the Sabbath. You will spend 70 years captive in Babylon. But what I want you to notice as we continue here, beginning in verse 31, is a transition. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Stop. What covenant was made with them when they came from Egypt? It was the Mosaic Covenant. God is saying here to them that He is going to make a new covenant. This is the prophet speaking of the great new covenant that is to come. And I want you to notice who the covenant is made with. He is very, very clear. Verse 31, it is with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The new covenant is made with the people of Israel. What are the terms of this covenant? Verse 33, but this is the covenant which I will make with them, with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. No more regular sacrifice reminding them of sin over and over and over again. No more law written on tablets of stone sitting in judgment over them, but the Spirit of God residing now within them, the covenant now within their heart, the power and the desire now in the inside to live in accordance with what God has required. He goes on. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name, in case you can't figure it out. Okay, This is the creator God speaking. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate and the measuring line shall go out further straight ahead to the hill Gareb, and then it will turn to Goa and the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown any more forever. Now, for those who would like to somehow think that he is speaking here in only some sort of uh, spiritual terms and that there is no physical dimension for this, you have to torture the scriptures. I mean, these are real places he talks about. 
And he says that if the sun doesn't rise and the moon won't come up and the stars fall out of the sky, if the fixed order of creation somehow can't hold, then my covenant with Israel will not hold. And there will no longer be, take a look at verse 36 at the end, a what? A nation before me forever. Let me turn you to the right, to Ezekiel chapter 36. Page 865 on a pew Bible there. Ezekiel 36, starting verse 16. Ezekiel 36 and verse 16. Ezekiel, by the way, is writing here to the exiles, to those that are in Babylon. They've already been swept out of their land. The judgment has come. Verse 16, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Therefore, I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on the land because they had defiled it with their idols. Also, I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed throughout the lands. According to their ways and their deeds, I judged them. When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name because it was said of them. These are the people of the Lord, yet they have come out of his land. Basically, what he's saying is that they have profaned the name of the Lord because the people look at them and say, hey, these are God's people and he couldn't keep them. Verse 21, but I had concern for my holy name which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. What is the prophet saying? He's saying that the nations, and when you see nations with the plural, he's talking about Gentiles. When the Gentiles look at the Jews who have been swept out of their land, their conclusion is that their God's not all that swift, not all that powerful, couldn't hold on to them, couldn't keep them in their land. They were overrun by the pagan gods and driven out. And he says, my name is blasphemed because of your wickedness. But I will vindicate my holiness because I will bring you back, and we'll read it in a moment, I will bring you back into this land. And I'm doing this not because of your sake. The claim of the people of Israel to the land has nothing to do with their personal merit. If anyone doesn't deserve the land, it's them. It has everything to do with the character of God. It is God's Character that is on the line here. And that's why you can notice I'm a little um, stoked. <laughs> this is about the character of God. This is, does God keep his word or doesn't he? Verse 24. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. 
Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe all my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I gave you, your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. Same terminology, by the way, right? That the prophet Jeremiah uses. You will be my people, I will be your God. This is the new covenant. This is the new covenant. But I want you to again notice that the spiritual blessing of this new covenant is wrapped in a promise of a homeland for the people. That they will come back to the land that God had promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that he had reconfirmed in Genesis chapter 15 that he confirmed again in Genesis chapter 17. And jumping ahead to what the Apostle Paul says, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable. In no way can it be said that these prophecies have been fulfilled with the nation of Israel, either in their return from the Babylonian captivity in 536 B.C., nor certainly in their return from the Roman dispersion in 1948. Even to this very moment, both the nation of Israel and the vast majority of Jewish people remain either indifferent or hostile to Jesus, their Messiah. Therefore, although in the providence of God, the birth of the modern state of Israel in 1948 may, listen to the word, may have some prophetic significance It is not the great regathering foretold by the ancient prophets. If Israel were driven into the sea today, let God be true, although every man be found a liar. It would not disrupt the ancient promises. Is the regathering of 1948 significant? I don't know. It's certainly interesting. Now, going back to the open letter. Back to the open letter and its anti-Israeli theology that underlines it. We have to ask this question, where did these ideas come from? Where did the ideas come from? Has this system of thought been around for a long time or is it new like the modern state of Israel? Well, the theological position behind the open letter is what is commonly called amillennialism or replacement theology. Amillennialism or replacement theology. Simply put, those who hold to this position believe that the church has always existed. And that the specific promises made to Israel in the Old Testament are being fulfilled today in the Jew-Gentile church. The result of this theological position is that it leaves the nation of Israel without hope of a future 1,000-year Davidic kingdom here upon the earth. 
Hence its name, uh, millennialism. Ah, the alpha privative. It means not, not millennialism. No millennial kingdom. The theological lift for this understanding must certainly be laid at the feet of the great 4th century North African church father by the name of Aurelius Augustus, or Augustine rather. He taught that the organized or universal church is the messianic kingdom foretold by the prophet Daniel. You understand that? What Augustine taught was that the church... And he's the one, by the way, who helped develop this idea of a universal church. This idea of all the believers through all the ages is the great messianic kingdom foretold by the prophet Daniel. In his work, The City of God, Augustine famously misinterpreted Psalm 59 and verse 11. And he applied it to the Jews by which their continuing enforced humiliation and homelessness would be, in his opinion, a reminder of God's judgment on them in accordance with the Scriptures. Psalm 59, verse 11. Don't turn there. I'll just read it to you. David's writing this, and he's writing it of his enemies. But this is the way Augustine interpreted Psalm 59, verse 11. It says, Do not kill them. According to Augustine, David's talking about the Jews. Do not kill them, the Jews. O Lord, our shield, or my people will forget. In your might, make them wander about and bring them down. You understand what he just did? That psalm was penned by the great King David, speaking of his enemies. Saying, Lord, do not kill my enemies, or the people will forget unrighteousness, but but make them vagrants and wanderers and remind people of what it means to violate the covenant of God. And Augustine flipped it and turned it into a, Statement about the Jewish people. In Augustine's mind, the Jews had rejected their Messiah. Therefore, God had cut them off. And the reason that he didn't exterminate them was so that they would wander the earth as vagabonds, homeless people, carrying on them the judgment of God for the rest of time. Augustine's influence with regard to amillennialism indelibly marks the eschatology of both the Roman Catholic Church and the writings of the great reformers like Calvin and Luther. There has been a tremendous, and I thank God for it, a tremendous recovery in the evangelical church of the doctrines of grace. It is about time that the evangelical church put away its man-centered gospel and began to again deal seriously with what the Scriptures say about faith in Jesus Christ. So I rejoice in the doctrines of grace and you hear me preach them to you on a regular basis, although I don't call them such things. But I do rejoice in it. But let me say to you, especially you young ones, who have recently discovered these things. And your soul is just filled with joy over it. Someone described it as you've like lived in a closet and now you walk into this banquet hall and it's just expansive and glorious and beautiful. And you're seeing the sovereignty of God in a way you've never seen it before. He's not some, you know, grandfather sitting on the edge of heaven biting his fingernails and wondering how it's all going to work out. He is the great and glorious one. 
and your heart is full of rejoicing and such things, and I rejoice with you. But let me just say this to you. The doctrines of grace, listen to me, the doctrines of grace do not necessitate an amillennial eschatology. Do you understand what I just said to you? That you can believe and preach the doctrines of grace because the Scripture is loaded with them, but you do not need to buy Augustine's package. They are not inseparable. Don't go there. Okay, now that was my introduction. Turn to Romans. <laughs> Turn to Romans chapter 11. No one's going to do this. <laughs> I mean, if you don't understand what's at stake here, This is the battleground chapter of the New Testament. Yeah, that's why I'm doing all this. Something Revelation chapter 20 is a battleground chapter. It's not. Revelation chapter 20 is not the battleground chapter. Romans chapter 11 is the battleground chapter. We need to understand what the Apostle Paul says here in Romans chapter 11. Now, the future of Israel. Let me just say this. The future of Israel is real. It's easy for you to say. The future of Israel is not simply an interesting discussion for armchair theologians. You know, Bible in one hand, newspaper in the other. Al Lindsay notwithstanding. Okay. The question, listen to me now, the question of the future of Israel directly and necessarily impacts our understanding of the reliability of God. Did you get that? The future of Israel directly and, I will argue, necessarily impacts our understanding of the reliability of God with regard to his willingness and ability to keep his promises to his people. Now, you remember Romans chapter 8 ended with such a, a great statement that I'm convinced neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah! But what about Israel? What about Israel? Didn't they have great promises? Hadn't God said some amazing things to them? What about Israel? Cut off? Separated from God? Sure sounds like something separated them from God. God can't hang on to Israel. What makes you think He can hang on to you? God can't hang on to Israel. What makes you think he can hang on to you? This chapter is critical. I'm right, giving you a handout. We will be working that handout for some weeks to come. I just gave you the whole overview of the chapter at one time, okay? So this morning, and there's only a few minutes left, we're going to briefly, very briefly... Praise Paul's argument for the restoration of Israel so that our confidence in God may grow. Okay, this is all about 
our confidence in our great God. All right, I'm giving you a simple outline, I've said. Verses 1 through 10, Israel's partial rejection. Verses 11 to 24, Israel's present rebellion. Verses 25 to 32, Israel's predicted redemption. Okay, that's the big map. That's the, that's the, uh, the road map to peace, or whatever that thing's called in the Middle East. Okay? This is God's road map. Now, I want you to notice uh, two things. There's two questions. Chapter 11, verse 1 begins with a question. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Go over to chapter 11. Paul says again, I say then, they did not stumble to, so as to fall, did they? These two questions underlie this chapter. I also want you to notice his response to those questions, right? Meginita in the Greek, we love it. No, 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 no. That's a colloquial translation. May it never be. May it never be, right? I mean, look at the way chapter 10 ends, verse 21. But as for Israel, God says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. All through chapter 10, Paul has been indicting the nation of Israel for their willful unbelief. Chapter 9, you remember, he explains their rejection of Messiah and that it, it lies in the mystery of the sovereign election of God. That's chapter 9. And then he comes into chapter 10 and he says, yeah, that's all true, but there's something else that's equally true, and that is that Israel should have believed and she didn't. She had all the opportunity in the world. And she refused. And the reason she refused is she is disobedient and she is argumentative. Now, one might conclude from that kind of an indictment that God is done, right? That's it. Fed up. I've had it. Not to mention the fact that by this time, the time Paul's writing this letter, the church is decidedly swinging Gentile. It began at Pentecost with 3,000 Jews. The early days of the church, it was a Jewish enterprise, but, but it doesn't take very long before the Jews grow increasingly hostile. The Gentiles grow increasingly welcome. Paul's missionary journeys explode, and it's not long. In fact, it's by this time, the church is now decidedly Gentile. Paul's writing to a church in Rome. It's a Gentile church. So the obvious conclusion from one uninformed of the Scriptures would be God's done with Israel. So Paul says, I say that, has God or God has not rejected his people? Has he? May it never be. Then Paul goes on to present his evidence. Okay, We'll unfold the evidence for you next time. But it's the idea that God has saved a remnant. God saved a remnant. There's only been a partial rejection. He asks another question here in verse 11 of the same chapter. He says, I say then they did not stumble to, so as to fall, did they? He says, may it never be. May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. I mean, is God finally done with them? No. No, God's doing something amazing. 
something amazing. He's saving Gentiles and he's doing it with the intention that as, as the Jews see God's mercy on the Gentiles, it will make them jealous and they will come back to their God. It's part of his design. Finally, verse 25. <coughs> he says, I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. I don't want you to be ignorant of something. Lest you be wise in your own estimation. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus all Israel will be saved just as it is written. Oh, we're going to have fun with that. We're going to have fun with that. We're going to, we're going to deal with prophecy. We're going to have to deal with prophecy. We're going to, we have to understand what the fullness of the Gentiles means. It's going to take us all through the Old Testament. The times of the Gentiles will end. We are in them now. They will end. And when they end... The mercy of God will be extended to the nation of Israel and they will be saved. In the words of Zechariah, they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. The new covenant will come in to the nation and God will put them back in their land. He will not do it exclusive of their conversion. But what I'm saying is that the nation, that's what Paul says, will be saved. Now, if you find that notion impossible that God somehow in a short period of time can save a whole people group, you shouldn't. Because on Pentecost, he gave you just an itsy bitsy teeny weeny down payment. 3,000 people in one sermon. 3,000 people with one sermon. I'm going to go ahead and do it. Let me just read the chapter to you. But as for Israel, God says all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. I am alone and left in there seeking my life. But what was the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Well, what then? That which Israel is seeking for, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. By the way, those who were chosen, speaking of Israelites. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes become darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Well, I say then, they didn't stumble so as to fall. The idea is permanently, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression be riches for the world and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? 
But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And if the first piece of dough be holy, the lump is also. And if the root be holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and become partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, which, by the way, is the Abrahamic covenant, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Well, you will say then the branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Behold, then, the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity. But to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren. The mystery. Lest you be wise in your own estimation. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel. Until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And thus all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins. Jeremiah 31 by the way. From the standpoint of the gospel. They are enemies, enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice. They are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient in order that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. You confident in God's ability and willingness to keep his promises to you? Do you have that kind of confidence? What about when you mess up and sin against him? Will he cut you off? How many times can one mess up and sin against him? Is there a limit? Will God cut you off? Do you have doubts and questions about these things? And I want to talk to you after this service.
We're going to take communion together. And we'll sing. And I'll be down here off to the side. But if you've but if you got doubts in your mind, you got questions, you're not sure. And I want to talk to you. But based on the Word of God, you might be sure. Gentlemen, if you want to join me here.